Colonize Your Destiny podcast. I'm your host, Ingrid LaFleur. Today, we are talking about decolonizing our history with guest Ayana V. Jackson. Ayana Jackson is my bestest friend, and she's my sister and fellow warrior within the art world. We've known each other since we were 16, for better or for worse. <laughs> and I've had the honor of witnessing her growth um, as a photographer, and it's been just so wonderful and really uh, kind of a, a point of learning for me. Um, more about her craft, how one develops a craft, and the things that they decide to investigate. So I'm so excited to share her with you. I just want to share her bio really quickly. Ayana V. Jackson's work examines the complexities of photographic representation and the role of the camera in constructing identity. Using performance and studio-based portraiture, her practice can be seen as a map of the ethical considerations and relationships involved between the photographer, subject, and viewer. Born in the U.S., based between Johannesburg, New York, and Paris, Jackson's work can be found in the collections of the Studio Museum in Harlem, New Jersey's Newark Museum, Chicago's Museum of Contemporary Photography, the Blachier Foundation in France, Princeton University, the University of South Africa, Morocco's Museum of African Contemporary Art, Al-Madin, in Marrakesh, along with varied corporate collections, including J.P. Morgan and Lucent Technologies. And more recently, she has been added to the collection at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Welcome. Thank you. Yay. Yay. And welcome to the D again. This is your third time. Thank you so much. (laughs) Lovely to be here again. Awesome. Awesome. So I I guess we could start with Detroit. You uh, are showing at David Klein Gallery, which is downtown, and you're showing your series, Dear Sarah. And it's also um, part of the Contact uh, Photo Festival in Toronto. You showed a part a part of that series as well. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the series and the story of Sarah? Sure. Um, Sarah, Dear Sarah is uh, a homage or it's a letter um, to Sarah Forbes Benetta Davies, uh, who is the um, goddaughter, was the goddaughter of uh, Queen Victoria. She was born in the mid-19th uh, century to... Uh, royal lineage in Yorubaland and was captured in a raid, uh, the Dahomey, a Dahomey raid on Yorubaland. Uh, her parents were murdered and she was held uh, captive in, in the Dahomey region. At the same time that this is happening, uh, the women's movement and other abolitionist movements around the world were uh, ramping up and uh, Queen Victoria decided to send a general, uh, General Forbes, uh, to, uh, to kind of uh, speak on her behalf to to implore King Geza, the Dahomey king of the time, to stop supplying slave labor um, uh, or, or to stop supplying bodies into the slave trade. And during, it's said that during the, the during that um, interaction, um, this young girl at six years old was going to be murdered um, in kind of a public ceremony. And uh, F- General Forbes, of course, uh, would not... 
um, sit through that. And uh, then in a grand gesture, gesture uh, King Geza gives her to um, Queen Victoria as a gift from the King of the Blacks to the Queen of the Whites. So she makes the voyage, learns English on the voyage, uh, several months voyage to the UK, is presented before Queen Victoria. She accepts her as her godchild and not only gives her you know, a home, not in the palace, but uh, a home is arranged for her, education is arranged for her, a clothing allowance and the like. She's basically raised in, um, as, you know, in, in the court, not, not in court, but, you know, among the royals, excuse me. <clears throat> and um, and ultimately, um, you know, an education a trip is, is sent, is made for her to Sierra Leone. Um, she seems to be unhappy there, is brought back to England, and then is um, a marriage is arranged for her uh, to um, a prominent Nigerian uh, who is believed to also have been of royal lineage in England, uh, Mr. Davies. And uh, the f portrait that I came across uh, in my research on Victorian urban, or, you know, black women of the Victorian era, um, it's more, yeah, of the Victorian era, um, uh, the, the photograph that I came across of hers is from her wedding day. Um, and so I decided to use that portrait um, to kind of bring her to life, to animate her in a certain way, because I felt that uh, as a um, she was objectified from the very beginning. She, beginning, she was captured and not sold into slavery because of what she, you know, because of what she represented. She was given as a gift. Um, she was basically made to do whatever Queen Victoria wanted her to do. What we have, what we have of her, are objects, uh, photographic objects, and um, and so for me, I wanted to see her m moving in movement. So there are, it's a polyptic of seven uh, photographs, three, uh, six in the white dress, uh, eyes closed towards the, her interior world, dreaming, moving, thinking, um, and uh, playing, experiencing pleasure and praise and all kinds of jubilation and different kinds of emotions. And then there is a singular image, uh, eyes open, seated, dressed in royal blue. And I use that to remind us that um, she, you are you are given permission to gaze but as of her as a, as royal and that she is uh, I, I usually say twice royal but I was corrected um, during my talk the other day at David Klein gallery that actually if her husband was of royal lineage and she's thrice royal of Yoruba royalty of proximity to the queen and also uh, through her marriage Wow. You know, I really love hearing this story simply because no one's talking about it. And you sure going to get, you know, the, the England to tell us about this um, black goddaughter to the queen uh, and not really understanding actually what that means in the present for me, but just knowing that there are so many histories that are invisible um, invisible meaning they exist um, and they're they're very much real um, but we just can't see them because no one has brought them to us um, and that means all of us right and and what does that mean as you know a white-bodied person to hear this story what does that mean as a black-bodied person to hear this story um, as a woman you know and and get again to talk about being an object you know uh, and to be passed 
around. What I love about the series is that we're going into the internal, as you mentioned, with the closed eyes. You're bringing her imagination into the space. You're bringing her brain, you know, this this essence of her that even in a historical context, if they were to present Sarah to us, um, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know the nuances of her. And it's like you're trying to bring that to life. During your talk at David Klein, which was really great, you you talked about how you're having this kind of conversation with Sarah. So it's not like you're trying to be her necessarily. It's more your own conversation, almost your own obsession with her. Can you tell tell us more about that? Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, You know, a lot of my work, and particularly this work, is uh, related to me trying to um, have a conversation with myself and my own body and what it means to inhabit a black woman's body um, in this lifetime and in this geography um, and in this historical moment. And um, a lot of work I've had to do... um, for for my own psychosocial or psychological like well-being um, has been to try to have other have new memories um, have, know new things um, feel a part of of more of more things and so I speak a lot about what much of the reason that I began making photography and using my own body was because I was trying to fill in histories and fill in archetypes and you know, when you know if you're for me you know if you're we were raised in the you know the end of the 20th century um at a time when you know racial stereotypes were rampant and going unchallenged and unchecked particularly in hollywood and uh the media and and on and on and so i was constantly in a in a battle about my black womanhood you know and who i got to be uh how much elegance I got to display or, you know, um, on and on and on, just kind of things where, you know, being challenged by the black community about being too non, you know, I didn't perform blackness the way that they felt that I should perform in it or, or being told in white space that, you know, I perform blackness I, I, I don't perform blackness at all, you know, or that I'm, you know, being told just kind of just this kind of thing of like, well, aren't we all like, are we not all of these things? Are we not all, like, you know, so this big struggle to a see myself, um, see myself represented in the media and imagery and, and the like as a middle-class black person, or actually a, a, a working class, a, a child, I grew up in a working class neighborhood to middle-class values and middle-class family and other, you know, East Orange, New Jersey and other people's imaginary would not be considered a, you know, in the time that I was living there, a middle-class neighborhood. But, uh, but I grew up with middle-class values and I didn't see myself represented. And so with Sarah, um, I'm having conversation with her because I, 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 I just feel like I, I would it would the young girl in me would have loved to know that there was a Nigerian woman during this period living in, in, in moving in royal circles uh, undeniably. You know, regardless of the racism and the fact that they were in the middle of the colonial experiment and, you know, slavery hadn't been fully dismantled um, during that period of time. She was unquestionable and undeniable. 
in her and she was not she was neither enslaved nor colonized she was a free black woman of prominence in england to know to have that story sit beside you know the story of enslavement and chattel slavery and the story of colonialism and all of the other elements that have unfortunately been the the origin story that you and i have talked about quite a bit need that needs to be challenged you know just to know to, to have that story sitting next to the story of enslavement would have changed something for me. It would have, you know, and I think my, my young, I'm in conversation with my younger self when I'm, when I'm trying to talk with her. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And you're right. We, we are often given as black Americans, this origin story of being a slave, right? And so whenever the slave is represented, they're in tattered clothes and they just look in raggedy. And of course, we can't relate to that. Even kids can't really relate to that, right? right. There's um, <clears throat> aesthetic, the aesthetics of it just it just creates all this distance. But then to, to know about um, African royals um, in this particular very intense time period, you know, the the history doesn't allow for us to even imagine that that could exist. Absolutely. All history tells us when we're coming up in school is that there are these white people grabbing black people from a land far away and dragging us across the, the ocean um, and, and discussing deplorable conditions, which just continue on once we, we arrive in the United States. And that's it scene exactly. <laughs> and then you know this is actually why I love Afrofuturism because it gives us permission to go beyond that origin story of slavery go beyond an origin story of even the formation of Africa so you know we can go as far back as we want to do and 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 then that creates like a level of healing and Absolutely. I think that that's space. what you're talking about mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. um, and it, as you were talking it reminds me of the the image when you uh, you recreated the Spelman women. Mm -hmm. uh, we both went to Spelman College. And uh, yeah, I don't know when this time period is, but it's such an elegant and beautiful uh, photo where she replicated herself as all the women um, in this photo. Uh, and and you're right to see black women in full dignity, even though we were being experimented on, <laughs> we were being raped, like, like the whole <laughs> denied access to everything. <laughs> So to yes, to know that we can maintain um, that that dignity. I want to ask you what really inspired you to fill in these gaps within history. Hmm. That's a good question. I think uh, it does. It goes back to my own personal struggle um, and memory. I guess um, I, I often tell the story that. Um, Okay, on a, on a conscious level um, and through the use of my body and my work, what inspired me, and it's a story that I, I tell quite often, is, you know, uh, going to a, an exhibition opening in Paris with Fred Wilson. Um, you know, Fred Wilson uh, represented the Venice Biennale, the, the one that was the first black American, black man to represent the Venice Biennale. We now have Martin Purrier there now. We had Mark Bradford uh, one iteration ago. So like we're doing it big in the Biennale. But um, but uh, Fred Wilson is a very prominent and important um, artist. And uh, I happened to be in Paris. Uh, happened to have been introduced to him. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm gonna have a reception at this gallery. Um, and I'd love for you to come and I go. And he says to me, you know, I'm so happy you came because 
you know, considering my work, which he deals a lot with the Black Atlantic, with the, you know, he deals a lot with, with the history of enslavement and, and colonization. And uh, the particular series where he was taking the color out of um, out of flags and asking people to read them. But anyway, he says, and then he has like the, the map of the, you know, or like the, the queen's crown in black crystals, you know, and, you know, just really, really amazing work. But it's very, very, very very dealing with like history of race and in this part of the world and he he says you know it would be it would be funny if you didn't come because I would be the only black guy here you know and considering this work that would be strange and I said oh no it's cool I've got some I got some friends from Paris you know like my Cameroonian like Parisian or whatever friends like I got I got you there's gonna be some black folk in here in a few minutes and then the funniest thing is that like 20 minutes later, um, not 20 minutes later, two hours later, as the reception is ending, um, you know, he comes up again and he's like, so I really would like you to come to the dinner. It's going to be upstairs at the home of the owner of the gallery. Uh, but unfortunately, I can't invite everyone. <laughs> so, uh, but he was like, thank you so much for bringing your people, but I can't invite everyone. And when I go upstairs, um, you know, um, I, I I went from hyper invisible to hyper visible just by being invited to that dinner, and everyone wanted to know who I was. Everyone wanted to know why I spoke French. Everyone wanted to know how I knew Fred, and you know if it was my first time in in in, in Europe and. My parents must be so proud and, you know, a thousand and one questions about where I've been and what I've done and what I've studied and this that, and the other. And it really was like one of almost every other time that I've been hyper visible in white space where I felt like I was the the, 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 the kind of the object of some anthropological dig. You know, people were talking to me, you know, trying to like almost like a study, you know, because they didn't understand how I got to be where I sat. And, you know, in that um or they weren't exposed to a real black American, or they weren't exposed, whatever it was, it was uncomfortable for me to constantly just be this thing of inquiry. Every and, uh, and I said, I remember thinking to myself, I wish that I could walk into these rooms as like every different kind of historical black woman archetype, you know, from the pre-colonial to the Afropolitan to, you know, astronauts, and then introduce ourselves and then snap back to being just me. And then I can talk about the weather or the art, God forbid, like everybody else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I felt like I needed, I think our collective memory, our humanity needs to know more of our stories, not just for me. I need to know them. I need to know who Sarah is. But actually me in that moment, in that room at that time, sitting at, you know, Fred Wilson, they needed to know Sarah Forbes Bonetta so that I didn't have to be somewhat traumatized by their ignorance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. I mean, that's the decolonizing work. Right. <laughs> it's not just us who need to decolonize. They need to decolonize. <laughs> They're, you know, I shouldn't say that's in them, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. Um, and it and and it takes uh, a lot a lot of conversation and explanation over and over repetition repetition. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and it absolutely. drives me absolutely crazy. But um, so I kind of want to uh, pivot a little bit and talk about poverty porn. Um, uh, poverty pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, that series you did uh, some years ago, uh, which was quite shocking for a lot of people and caused a lot of controversy because you used your nude body um, in these uh, to kind of reenact very uh, violent uh, imagery, uh, and and you talk about like the seduction 
Um, but then the repulsion and that play and that tension that happens with your work. But you also talk about how people are addicted to seeing black bodies in pain. You said that today, and I was like, whoa, where is the pause button on that? <laughs> Let me just say it again for y'all. She was like, people are addicted to seeing black bodies in pain. And that, you know, I, I'm getting goosebumps when I think about it because my brain is going to the YouTube videos or Facebook videos of black bodies being shot um, or assaulted, you know, it's like, and, and how we had to tell everybody how to turn off their instant play on Facebook because people were getting traumatized, right? But it, 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 it's so true in, in that, and I want you to speak to that, but I also want you to speak to the fact that you say that you use your own body because you don't want another woman, you don't want to subject another woman's body to to this, yeah. But at the exact same time, that means that your body is absorbing all of this energy. So what happens to that energy? What do you do with that? And how do you move that through? Well, last things first. Um... I think uh, I'll just say, you know, after my talk at David Klein, um, you as my sister does, you know, you had a really beautiful um, party for me um, at the home of, of another good friend of ours. Uh, and um, it was filled with just loving energy. You know, it was beautiful people, beautiful music, beautiful food. You put beautiful flowers, you know, and I remember at some point um, in the middle of it, kind of randomly, I was just like, thank you, because you gave me a soft landing. Um, when I was doing poverty pornography, uh, or rather when I was kind of talking about it a lot, you know, in the way that I did at David Klein, um, I remember that I would come home, you know, you know, we would go for drinks or we would do something or whatever. I don't have a partner. So often I would come home alone and, you know, and just feeling depleted and drained and feeling like, um, you know, feeling like I just like spent you know, and unless there was someone who loved me around to kind of just, we didn't have to talk about, because often it wasn't even a conscious feeling. It was actually several, after several, you know, because it went around to different countries and and I love to give talks, so I do it voluntarily. But it, it was at a certain point where I realized that this was traumat traumatizing me. Actually, what it was was someone interviewed me about about trauma um, as an artist and, and, you know, and all of this. And it was the first time that I realized that actually I, there is, is a part of dealing with this work that is re-traumatizing me because I'm asked to not only deal with, defend my actual body, um, the, my choice to use my body um, and my choice to make the work, um, but you know, I'm also, I, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm also engaging with, in a very candid way, my own insecurities as a black woman, my own personal pain, my own personal kind of moments of, you know, because I can sit here today and, and fully, fully, I'm a Spelman woman, you know, I have full confidence. I don't want to inhabit any other body than this black woman's body, but it wasn't always that way, if I'm honest with myself. And so I'm having to kind of talk about that through the work. And um, and I didn't realize that, you know, there's something I, I, there has to be I can't just just go back to, you know, doing whatever. And so that's why I really appreciated the the the, the party, because I was just in a safe space. And so I think I would like to create more of that for myself when I'm coming off of these talks. Um, 
but because you know exactly that as you as you said i don't use other women's bodies particularly with that series because i i i just to me it just wouldn't it would be no intervention as well you know um and um and i i don't want because also the, one of the things that's that, that that the black woman's body has to deal with and also the male body but it's almost like the permission to gaze you know it was we were like consent we lacked there was no consent Never. in how our bodies exactly you know from from our death from our most humiliated circumstances of enslavement from you know lynching you know historic lynching and contemporary lynching you know there is no consent our pain is being presented and paraded with no regard or consent and Susan Sontag writes about this in regarding the pain of others you know and um, there was an actual deliberate for instance with the military you could not photograph a military soldier without a shirt on for instance you could not so photograph uh, a dead American soldier in certain you know this is like during the the, uh, the early 20th, 20, 20th century, you know, there were rules about what could be photographed, how people could, who got, what could be seen. You know what I mean? But this, the, but there was no protection of our bodies. The carte de visites, semi-nude, you know, bare-breastedness, you know what I mean? It got completely taken, our beautiful nurturing, you know, act of, 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 of being with our child, you know, or just being in our community and, you know, was stolen from us and made into hypersexuality. You know, they put a Judeo-Christian, you know, even Adam and Eve bolt BS onto our bodies. And then to this day, we're having to deal with the idea of the hypersexual black woman, you know, that black, black woman sexuality is dirty. It's wrong. Yeah, I mean, first I want to thank you for giving your whole self to the mission of decolonizing minds. <laughs> no, I'm very serious because you literally give your whole self. You give your, your emotions, your intellect, and your body. And I, I think about that, um, you know, in the beginning, you posing, or, you know, being nude in your photography was a little bit of a shock for both of us, actually. <laughs> we were like, oh, so this is really happening now. Um and, you know, for me, it was like, oh, every man that I date will know what my best friend looks like naked. <laughs> but um, at least it takes away a little mystery. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> but but I think that like, oh, now I, I lost my train of thought. Well, the funny <laughs> thing, while you, while you find it, um, I, I think I've told you this. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Well, that ne I'll never be first lady. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was my revelation. I was like, oh, crap, I'll never, because it's, of course, during uh, Michelle Obama's uh, reign. And uh, But now we're back to, like, you know. Yeah, no, anybody can, can be first can, lady right. at this point. Yeah, you yeah. can do a porn video and yeah, be first lady. Problem. Thank you, Melania. <laughs> One thing you did. You opened the doors. Thank you. <laughs> But um, I was I was thinking about um, you know looking at photos of your newest project and and how you're bare-breasted again and how that's such a natural traditional thing for Africans and 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 how that does become super sexual um, within a, a Western context and it's and we've just been trained to do that uh, how depressing and how that just creates more distance from our origin points. If right. that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, my my relationship to my body has changed. Um, you know, I do. I have to say that I have a, um, you know, I, I, 
the private and the public, you know, there's 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 a difference. You know, I I don't see, I don't really see my body when I see it nude presented in the imagery. I I see my character's body, um, and maybe it's just something I I you know, it's a lot of work I have to do psychologically to to be I'm able sure. to. <laughs> To do all this stuff and still stay sane and still feel like I have a sense of privacy. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think about it right now. I, Fahamu Peku painted a new fo- portrait of me mm-hmm. um, many years ago. And so it's hanging in someone's house. And every once in a while, <laughs> it, it clicks that like my nude body is hanging somewhere in someone's home, somewhere in this world. Um, probably worth a lot now that it was Fahamu Peku yeah, who painted of course, it. So of like... course. You might want to find out. <laughs> Definitely. You know, uh, also in your talk, you talk, you mentioned that, and because it's you, they might want to know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you just up the value. Oh no! <laughs> like everyone's looking for that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you talk about how you're not really into aesthetic, or you're not as concerned about aesthetics. It's a social sociological aspect of your work that you're really into, and I'm I'm guessing because you majored in sociology in college, and this was has been a um, a field or, or a space of investigation for you for a very long time. But at the exact same time, your photographs are beautiful, uh, and. It makes me, because you are aesthetically beautiful beyond, yes, God created you beautifully, but you also, you know, how you... Just a reflection of you. (laughs) But also like what you wear and what you choose to wear, like you are very much concerned with aesthetic. (laughs) I've known you for too long. Um, And so I, I find it interesting that you kind of are pushing that a little bit to the side and making that comment. Can you explain that a little bit more and like really explain to us what does it mean to really focus on the sociological aspect of your work? Well, um, I've been really because of you, I've been using the word ministry more and more. Right. Like I feel like you have a ministry, you know, like divorced from um, divorced from uh, it's religious you know connotations I think that you have there's a very specific message and there's a very and you really need people to hear it and you need and you want community to be transformed through your ministry through for through your activism what you have to say and for me I would say it's the same you know um I am you know in a way I see myself as an activist more so than an artist or an artist activist um, because all of my work is ultimately a way of um, mining through the past, mining through uh, elements of social engineering, mining through, you know, um, you know, racist um, and xenophobic kind of propaganda and looking at how it has impacted society. So that's the sociolo- sociology of it, right? I want to know how the history of photography has formed racial stereotypes. And I want to know how I am impacted. I want to think about how I am impacted by those racial stereotypes. Stereotypes, and I want my audience, if they don't live in a black woman's body, even if they live in a black man's body or in a non-black body, I want them to understand how they themselves are also formed by those and affected by those stereotypes. Um, because, you know, and and in order to do that, I, I think I wanted to find, I guess I do respond to aesthetics. I respond to aesthetics more so than I have, I feel like I have an aesthetic 
ministry, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, you know, so I think there, I noticed early on that, you know, like a, a, a Dutch master painting will give me, I don't even know who the person is in, a, let's say a Rembrandt or whatever, you know, but something in my mind says that's, that's aristocracy, just because it's, it's framed and it's on a wall and it's in a museum and there's a white person in it and you told me that it's high art. I assume also that the person in the high art is somewhat of prominence. And so for me, I said, okay, well, thinking about the Becoming Subject series where more loosely we talk about them as the Black Victorians, you know, I want to see my body. I want to see bodies that look like me regarded in that way. So I, I, I borrowed from the Dutch master aesthetic um to to insert this body to to give you to almost do a memory trick on you on me as well that oh of course you know of course i remember this because it's memory work i think so i use aesthetics to jog memory um so it's stylized and it's aestheticized um but mainly as a tool um, as a as a tool to communicate as a communication tool um but that's, but but that is rooted in me trying to do some, you know, back to the future type, you know, surgery, you know, on on the past, so that it changes something right now for me and for you, and then obviously moving into the future. Yeah, what does that mean for the future if things shift right now, based on the information that you give us? It means that. You know, if anyone who's listening to this podcast right now or anyone who has a chance to uh, go to the exhibition or Google Sarah Forbes Bonetta, not even see my work, just Google Sarah Forbes Bonetta, the, it, it means that from now on, every every person who's listening in this moment is forever changed by knowing that a black woman lived as royalty in 19th century England. That changes something immediately and if it doesn't if it doesn't change something um consciously it changes something subconsciously yeah i call that planting seeds mm -hmm. i'm all i'm in the business of planting seeds Absolutely. I, I will not see the results of anything that i do as a futurist today Absolutely. i'm i'm very comfortable and clear about that but at the exact same time it's so important for all of us to always plant these seeds in people's minds if we want the consciousness to shift and that's absolutely. the ultimate mission, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so we can be done with this. I have a, a question for you. Um, if race wasn't an issue, <laughs> if gender was not an issue, what would you be doing? You know, I've heard that question asked before, and I asked our girlfriend, Shatima Threadcraft, right. Dr. Shatima Threadcraft, and, and she has the best answer I've heard hmm. to date. I would be off running a multi-billion dollar foundation somewhere and living and, and living in my, like, house off the Muffy Coast, you know? That's true. <laughs> That's some realness. You know, because if race weren't an issue, being a fourth-generation college graduate would mean I would have a lot of socioeconomic power. Um, if race were not an issue and gender not an issue as a woman I you know would probably be making 10 times as much uh, per artwork that I am right now if race and gender were not an issue um, perhaps I would I mean it goes on and on and on and on in terms of the, the you know because when you're really listening to uh, you know we were at under, we were at Submerge earlier today talking with some gentlemen and you know um, it was it said that uh, you couldn't you know, Motown Motown was uh, in a in the home of Barry Gordy because 
black people could not own uh, office space. <laughs> right. Black people could not own office space. Barely could own the house in the first place. Could so, barely so that's own a, the house. A miracle in the Let's first place. Let's start there, right. <laughs> now, barely could own the house. Now is can't have office space, can't play race music or black people's music on you know on the radio, um, has to go to Canada. Apparently, it's Canada that made techno and all of this you know and uh, well Motown moving on you know because they were able to play the music. They didn't have the same anti-black music, black DJ laws as Detroit as as Michigan. So really, if it, it's it is the proximity to Canada that made Motown even have the chance to be what it is because the United States laws were. And we're talking. And then he said something about how, you know, they only started being able to play black music after before midnight, like in like the nineties or something crazy like that in our lifetime. Yeah, I mean, Canada just constantly providing freedom, huh? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it just don't stop. Just, yeah, you know, so when you think, so like when you ask me that question, I'm like, yeah, it's stratospheric. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's really interesting. Someone also said uh, the basements of Detroit transformed the world. Because Absolutely. that's where most of the music came from. Um, and we're, we're including Detroit techno into this conversation as well. Uh, and I find that really I love I love that so much because it's just so what is that like just so damn that's so black it's just like have you been in these black basements right. <laughs> with these Absolutely. records with Absolutely. music producers it's like Absolutely. it's just so real so concrete so solid Ah, oh, I love it so much but of course I'm and a Detroit it's a sound that rocked the world the entire world the entire world um I would love to hear your impressions of Detroit. It's your third time here. And, uh, and yeah, I was just, I remember our arguments when we were <laughs> younger because you didn't know Detroit. And I, was, yeah. and I would say that, like, we have these, like, mansions inside the city that are owned by black people. And it was hard for you to believe that. It, it's hard for anyone to believe that, quite honestly. But, uh, but yeah, I'm curious to know what you what you think. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think what I think about when I think about Detroit is, uh, yes, of course. I mean, we have, yeah, no, yes, the Detroit is, is phenomenal. Um, and through you and through my visits and, and the people that you surround yourself with, um, I've I've learned, I've Detroit has unpacked itself, you know, really um, amazingly for me, and it continues to unpack itself through the people. Um, and but I think what I I didn't understand uh, fully um, is the the impact of the black community in Detroit on the world. Um, I was speaking with a friend of yours yesterday about he says Detroit is the arsenal of democracy because of the the assembly line technology that they were able to do the fighter planes that basically won us the Second World War. That's that's like deep, you know what I mean? Like that's deep. And who are the bodies, right? Who are the bodies that were building those machines? Right. And also there was a level of diver diversity, too, within the factories. So that Absolutely. was like one of the first places where, you know, place of desegregation. Of desegregation. Yeah. And people really got along. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And then the middle class, the yeah. black middle class. That was I think that yeah. the, 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 from what I'm understanding, like the, the whole notion of the middle class, kind of a whole lot of the identity of the middle class got shaped around these factories, this kind of part of the world, the black middle class, one of the biggest black, if not the biggest, one of the biggest black middle classes in the country. Country, um, you know, up until uh, more recent history, and and just just on and on, and then the music, and 
Um, and, and I think I have to echo Jen, you know, yesterday, it's like, like, I'm grateful to Detroit. I didn't know to be grateful. Um, I think until I met you and, and even more, I'm, I'm becoming more grateful to Detroit, um, as part of my history, as American history, as black history. Um, it's, it's, and, um, yeah, so, but it's amazing and, you know, it's struggling to kind of figure out who it wants to be in this kind of thing of gen, not who it wants to be, meaning you have like a new populations that are coming in, um, and you know, the, the gentrification battles that are happening in other parts of the world are definitely happening here but again I'm, I'm also with Jen I think y'all got this <laughs> yeah I mean we've always been clear about who we are I don't think that other people want to hear that or listen to us simply because we're a black bodied city right black bodies aren't listened to anywhere else so why would they be listened to even if we're a majority of the city right. and um, I'm so glad that you you're having this uh, experience in Detroit and developing this type of relationship it feels really great and now you understand why Detroiters are so loyal to the city and why we like, I mean, yeah. Ayana would tell people in a second, like, do not say anything bad about Detroit. <laughs> this is even before she came to the city. She knew yeah. that me and any other Detroiter would be like, excuse me, what did you say? Yeah, like, <laughs> we would go warrior. off. And yeah, and it, it, it has always, um, just, it disturbs me and actually breaks my heart when black people say bad things about Detroit. I'm like, do you understand that we are you? Like, this is your home. We're 85% black. There's no other major city like this. Right. We got you when you come here. Right. Chicago don't got you. <laughs> like yeah. no other cities got you. Even DC, they're losing their, you know, they're pushing their black population out. Um, we are really hardcore about staying. And that's why you hear that narrative over and over. Those who stay, because we are not trying to lose this city. Right. And right. we're trying to not only keep it for ourselves, we're trying to keep it for every black bodied person on this planet. Absolutely. <laughs> and, Absolutely. and it's an important place. And a, a lot of people don't understand the, the deeper value of it when you think about we are surrounded by 20% of the world's fresh water. We have fertile land. Um, the, the auto industry is based here. Like it, it's an extremely valuable place. That's why we're basically at war for it. And and it's unfortunate that people don't really understand how the support from the African diaspora would be very helpful right now um, in this war. Um, but people uh, decide to accept the media's narrative around Detroit that has been going on for decades and decades, ever since I was Absolutely. born. Absolutely. And you would think that at this time in history, the idea of building a highway over the hood just would you, you would know that that doesn't work. <laughs> you would think that at this point, that's like a surefire way for stuff to go down. Right. You know what I mean? So you just can't. You can't come into a city and ignore its population. And thankfully, people have, have tirelessly been doing work, you know, to preserve our agency. I mean, I live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. It's the same thing. We're trying to deal with, you know, trying to keep some of the character of Brooklyn Um and, 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 you know, of course we acknowledge that there was also other, other populations, other communities, you know, for, for instance, in Crown Heights, it would be the Jewish community. It's not to say, but the thing is, it's not to say that, you know, uh, one doesn't have the right to be, but it's like you can't be in this place and not acknowledge the, the other people in the community. And because it's uncomfortable and because people don't want to do the work because they don't, they weren't raised to say hello to their neighbor for whatever reason, there's a lot of 
this kind of stuff that's going on. It doesn't have to go on because no one's saying you can't be here. It's just saying you can't you can't come here and act like I'm I wasn't here. Yeah, you no. can't pretend that I'm invisible and that I have no um, no stake, no no yeah. value. Yeah, I went in Rome, do as the Romans do. Absolutely, but no, not with black bodies because they we've you know they've always owned us. Yeah. Right. And if for centuries white body people have been taught to dehumanize black bodies, it's are we really going to expect them today to just be like, we love you? <laughs> like yeah, it's going to it takes a lot of time. Even if you consciously have no issues with black bodies, it is in your DNA and it's been planted over and over in your DNA for centuries. Which is why you have conversations <laughs> with people and it's like, oh, I never thought about that. And it's like, of course you never thought about that because you don't live in a black body and you were essentially taught to ignore black bodies. So, and this brings me back to, that's why I say, you know, my work for me is about that because I'm always trying to find the original sin. You know, like, what is it? Because for me, humanity is sick. White people are sick. Black people are sick all of humanity are sick because we have we because we have a festering wound um you know obviously it begins with the indigenous people of this land in particular you know um and then but then also the the you know the tens of millions of people that were brought back brought through the middle passage the, the 15 or so million that are at the bottom of the ocean because they were thrown overboard or never made it you know there's a there is a debt there is a psychic there is a psychic and emotional debt spiritual debt too. and there's a spiritual debt that has to be addressed and until we address it we're all going to just stay sick and you can see it we're walking around like zombies half the time yeah on both sides you know um from addiction on both sides mm -hmm. you know from the opioids all the way down to you know to crack or or alcoholism or you know we're sick yeah. we're, we're trying to escape aren't white men like the number one suicide commit the the most suicides in the United States? I wouldn't know, but I would But I, I think I heard something, and it made me think, yeah, I'm sure there's a, a deep level of depression there. Because mm -hmm. um, the di disconnection, when you're disconnecting from a human being, you're really disconnecting from your spirit, your soul, your, the, like, yeah, whatever you want to call that. But, like, you, you are draining the spiritual of you out. Because mm -hmm. um, there's no way to really be able to disconnect from a human honestly Absolutely. without we it being each other. yes exactly i want to ask if there is psychological safety growing up in a like majority black uh city so you you grew up in orange mm -hmm. i always get the oranges mixed up <laughs> i grew up in east orange i'm Thank from you. east orange yeah east but orange. my dad's home was in orange it was yeah. in orange which mm -hmm. is right near uh newark New Jersey, the suburb of Newark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, was there a, a, like a psychological safety uh, that I think you kind of carry now, which probably gives you strength mm -hmm. to do the work that you're doing? Yeah, um, I I look, I actively seek out black space. Um, professionally, I deal. You know, I, I'm I'm a I'm a functioning artist. I work with a lot of non-blacks. Um, I I'm often in very wealthy white space, whether I'm in Europe and sometimes even in Africa. I live part time in Johannesburg, as you know. Even in South Africa, I can be in predominantly white space. Um, you know, and it's you know I, I you know we're shape shift. We're, we're 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 able to move. We can we can shape shift. We can kind of move. I wouldn't even really call that shape shifting so much, but but we can move between societies without a problem. You know, as someone said to me once. 
wants like a, a, a no no self no black woman who takes herself seriously that hasn't trained their child in, in the ways of both white and black people because it's just a survival mechanism um, but it's a survival mechanism and so what I do is um, I actively uh, move between societies. I move between different kinds of black space. Um, obviously, my Black American um, space is a is a serious, you know, hearth hearth, you know, in of of, of warmth um, for me. But also being in uh, in in South Africa, being in Ghana, being around, being in in black communities in Paris and and you know uh, most or London, you know, I. I, that's what helps me feel grounded um, because too often it's, I'm still having to deal with that performativeness. As I'm getting older, I'm losing my filter more and more. But I for, Tell me about it. <laughs> but definitely in my 20s and 30s, you know, I would be in white space and I would just, you know, I'd pick my battles. I would choose not to battle you know, um, I was just kind of like, whatever, and not address things. I would hear, you know what I mean? I would never take the like, oh, you know, you don't remind me of other black people. And I wouldn't say, take that with a smile. I would always react to that, to that kind of ignorance. But, you know, if people start saying things that are a little bit off color, I just, and I, if I don't feel like the, the traumatic, the trauma of addressing it, I just wouldn't now. But then I realized that I was absorbing it. So I would hear something that I wouldn't agree with or I would listen to someone go down a path that I thought was problematic. And because I didn't want to go through the drama of cursing that motherfucker out, I would just smile and have another glass of wine and walk to the other side of the room. You know, which probably has to do with why I drink so much wine to this day. Now I'm a little bit more likely to address it if so that I get it out of myself and not with anger necessarily. But, you know, with slow and measured and with the aim of helping a person to understand their ignorance, you know, uh, just so that I cannot harbor that inside me. Because I think that a lot of black bodies, we are making ourselves sick because for historically, we have not been able to address, speak truth to power. We have not. It was a matter of life and death. Something as simple as telling someone they gave you the wrong change was as simple was could be a matter of life and death up to our, our parents' generation, you know. So we've been harboring this for so long, and I think it's making us ill. I still say it's making them ill, but it's making us ill. And so to me, um, yeah. So so I also try not to have to do I don't, to spend my whole day doing that, you know. Well, I mean, this is why we have, um, we're more likely to have higher blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, the stress of being black bodied, especially in the United States. We, on this so much uh, research now about children, having children. Exactly. You know. So it really does affect us physically. So this is a great segue into uh, a question that I ask every guest. How do you decolonize daily? How do I decolonize daily? I would say I do my best to eat real food. Um, because what does real food mean to you? Um, uh, fresh food, 
fresh fruits and vegetables, things that don't come out of a can or a bottle um, or, or a carton. Um, if I can, if I can juice my own oranges, if I can make my own green smoothie, if I can get myself to choose, pick up the salad instead of the sandwich, um, if I can, you know, just uh, give myself good food because I think the other thing about it is we all know about food food deserts and we all know about also in general how how toxic food over the last couple of generations has been marketed to all of humanity you know but with something that we particularly have issues with within the black community um, I think that's something that I will not let you kill me you're not I'm not going to I'm not going to consciously eat something that I know is going to kill me if I can if I can find the power, you know, to do that. We were talking about, you know, chicken chicken drumsticks the size of automobiles. Like, you know, like this is toxic. You know what I mean? This isn't about being a vegetarian, not because I'm not a vegetarian, you know. Um, but you know, I think uh, food because and water. Um, it's it's the most because I'm constantly in the act of decolonizing because that's my work I get up in the morning and I go to bed so to, to try to answer it in a way that's not more about my practice it really is in 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 the food um, because I think we're having to train ourselves back on good food um, back on real food on live food on living vegetables you know not things that have been processed or plant or you know what I mean um, I think that's probably how I try to, because I think I've been taught to eat sugar. I've been taught to, to do the things that are killing me, you know. And also, come on, black people don't need to be eating no sugar, no way. Right. Sugar done got us in a whole lot of trouble. Right. <laughs> Tell me about it. We were just talking about diabetes yesterday. Absolutely. I'm talking about the plantation. Well, and then there's the plantation, too. <laughs> Let us not forget. Um, so as a pleasure activist, I have to ask... Oh, Lord. Um, I'm no, I know you too well for these kind of questions, but all right. <laughs> no, I'm just, so, <laughs> well, my question is really, how do you intentionally inject pleasure and joy into your life on a, like, and this is coming from the pleasure principle, you know, my pleasure principle that everything and every moment should be really wonderful. So I'm wondering, you know, what, how do you, what gives you pleasure and then how do you inject that into your life intentionally? Lately... Um, because I've been blessed with people like you and my different, you know, partners I've had over time and friends, um, I've never really curated music for myself. You know, I've just kind of relied on whoever's radio or whoever's podcast or, you know, um, playlist or whatever. Lately, I've been, um, you know, I'm very late to the ship exam of it all, but like, you know, I'm, I'm actually playing music for myself. Like I wake up in the morning and I play music. I'm used to, I'm your, uh, up until recently, I'm an NPR girl. Like I wake up, I put on New York Public Radio, you know, and um, and I listen to the news and I listen to the news. And I think it might be because the news has become so devastating from the election to Black Lives Matter to, you know, what's going on in the French elections, the this, the that, you know, it's just, it's too much. That plus my work, I just want to slip my wrists. You know what I mean? <laughs> like So instead of turning on the news uh, as often as possible, I'll turn on music. I'm sent this is also something that I kind of learned from you because I know you work a lot with oils for your own personal, you curate your own scent. I've always worn perfume, but I've gotten more into oils. Um, and so this, the act of like scenting myself in, in, in my kind of um, grooming in the morning. So scent and sound um, I, I'm beginning to, to spend more time with um, and they give me deep pleasure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. That sounds delicious. 
I hope you guys uh, picked up some good pointers for decolonizing your life. Um, and please tell me how you de decolonize your destiny. And you can email me at decolonizeyourdestiny at gmail.com. Ayana, how can people reach you? I am reachable. My website is uh, my full name, A-Y-A-N-A, -A -A, V as in Victor, Jackson.com. I know many of my sisters have two N's in their name, but it's important to remember that I only have one. Um, my Instagram is the same, Ayana V. Jackson. Uh, and uh, yeah, through my galleries uh, here in Detroit, uh, you can reach me through the David Klein Gallery uh, in downtown. Uh, for those of you who don't really do downtown, <laughs> um, um, I'm with Marianne Ibrahim Gallery in Chicago. And, uh, you know, we'll be having a beautiful exhibition there this September. Uh, but yeah. Who's an amazing, amazing art dealer, black woman. Love. That's another way that I decolonize. Okay. I work with black people. Mm -hmm. I Not to the complete exclusion. Obviously, David Klein's not black and Christine. but So it's not to the complete exclusion of black of, of, of non-black uh, businesses. But it, it's important to me to, to work with black people. Black, other black people and to black to work with a black woman with my work with this kind of work it's very important to me because I'm trusting her with not only my money but I'm trusting her with a part of my my journey my spirit myself and um, and so I think another way that I try to decolonize regularly is if I can find a way to support a black person or a black business um, uh, you know I you do will. yeah I do that's that's really great, actually. That's probably one of the best ways that we need to circulate this exactly. money. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you're supporting small businesses yeah. more often than not, right? And yeah. also to kind of, it also helps to get us away from this like corporate, this big corporate kind of culture that is taking the soul and the spirit out and of the intimacy of and it the all. intimacy out of yeah. the consumer experience and this and this and that. So supporting a black business is also supporting small business. And I think that's very important for, again, because again, I'm mostly concerned with us, but I am concerned with uh, the overall our overall human community. Thank you so, so much, Ayana. Thank you for being a part of my journey. So many of my thoughts are mixed <laughs> up with yours. Um, I think sometimes we share the same brain. So um, it's really great to... Uh, to be here with you and to be oh, in your city you. and to watch you um, really, really affecting people. I mean, when I see young people, people uh, young and old, the way that they really appreciate the work that you do in this city, it's, you know, I'm like, that's my sister, you know. <laughs> but more than that, I'm like, I'm so happy that Detroit has you. Yeah. Oh. Thank you. Yeah, You're course. so sweet. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. Mm -hmm. And thank you to all of you who are listening. I am Ingrid LaFleur, the host of Decolonize Your Destiny. Until next time. Anybody asking?